Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are the creator of all things, the one who spoke the world into existence, and also the God who has spoken, revealing to us the words of life. So, as we open your word now, would you speak to us? And we pray that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word. Would you use it to shape us, to mold us, that we, your servants, might be made more like Jesus Christ our Lord. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you would please open the scriptures to our sermon text, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 984. Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Since we're coming back to Colossians after some time away, it's helpful to be reminded of where we are in this letter. Paul opened the letter with prayer, giving thanks to the brothers, for the brothers and sisters there. Thanks for their strong faith and praying that they would continue to grow in that faith and bear fruit in the Lord. And we had the great hymn of Christ, declaring Christ's supremacy over all things, both in the original creation and in the new creation, in which he is reconciling all things to God the Father. Then he applied that reconciliation to the Colossians, speaking of the wonderful way in which they have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And then most recently, last time I preached, we saw how Paul wrote about his own gospel ministry, how he had been called by God to labor, to toil, to even suffer with the goal of presenting every person mature in Christ. Now this morning we begin a new section of the letter. And in fact, we enter into what is considered the main body of the letter. The central section beginning here in 2.6 and running all the way until the final greetings begin in chapter 4. And here we find Paul's main message to the Colossians. And that's not to say that what he's written in the introduction has been unimportant. For in fact, he will now return to many of the themes that he introduced in the first chapter and now develop them further. And the last thing that he said, chapter 2, verse 5, was that he was rejoicing in the Colossians' firm faith. But now he doesn't want them to rest on their laurels, to be eased into a sense of complacency. He says, yes, be encouraged that you are in Christ. But now he follows up that encouragement with one 
central exhortation followed by an important warning. And each of these serves as a headline, as an overarching summary, laying out the main themes that Paul will develop throughout the rest of this chapter, throughout the rest of chapter 2. So he's introducing the main themes of the chapter here. So this morning we will see the exhortation to walk in Christ, followed by the warning to watch out, don't be taken captive. So first, the headline exhortation. Walk in Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now this exhortation, technically, it is the first command in this whole letter. Paul has prayed that the Colossians would do certain things, but he has not commanded them to do anything yet. This is the first command. And this first command serves as a high-level summary of the application that Paul will flesh out throughout the next two chapters. That is to say that the rest of the commands that he will lay out, will, that the rest of the commands he will give will lay out what it looks like to walk in Christ. What it means to live with him as the Lord of your life. Now you can see that this exhortation to walk in Christ, it's rooted in, it flows out of, who they are, who you are. You are Christians. You have received Christ. Now you must let that identity naturally flow into a life lived in Christ. Now first, let's examine more closely Paul's language. As Paul uses this interesting verb, it might not seem interesting, but it is. He says, you have received. Now for Paul... In the first century, within the Jewish community, this was actually a technical term. It was used to refer to handing down an authoritative tradition. Now, sometimes that was an illegitimate, human, merely human tradition. Like the traditions of the Pharisees that Jesus criticized. But it could also refer to a true tradition, a tradition worth handing down. So you see Paul uses it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen for the word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures." And he uses it several other places. The point is that this gospel truth is something Paul received, something that he passes on to others who also receive it. Notice also exactly what they received. He could have written, you have received the central confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he doesn't write, you have received that Jesus Christ is Lord. The confession of good doctrine is crucial, of course. But instead, he writes, you have received Christ himself. He puts the focus on receiving Christ himself because this stands at the center of everything that Paul will write here in chapter 2. You are united to Christ. And if you have Christ, you are filled in him and you have received everything in him. Notice also the title that Paul gives to Jesus here. Christ 
Jesus the Lord. Now we might see that title, we might see it all the time, we just keep reading and we don't even notice it. We don't even realize how profound it is. But this is a title declaring Jesus' identity with two exalted titles. First, he is the Christ, the long-awaited Messiah, the anointed King of Israel. But also he is the Lord, God Almighty, the Sovereign One. And so Paul is reminding the Colossians of the key step that they have taken. Let me speak to you. If you have received him, this is the step you have taken as well. You have received Christ Jesus, the Lord. You have recognized not only that he is the one who is sovereign over all things, but he is sovereign over your life as well. The implication then, it's obvious. It's simple. In light of this, walk in him. It's been a few weeks, but we've already seen this language of walking in this letter to the Colossians. Back in chapter 1, back in verse 10, Paul prayed for them to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And you might recall that to walk, it's a Hebrew metaphor, a Hebrew way of speaking about simply how you live your life. And so to walk in Christ is to live in Christ, to live out the fact that he is your Savior and your Lord. And back in chapter 1, as Paul prayed for them to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, he described that walk. He used four, technically speaking, adverbial participles. And interestingly enough, he does the exact same thing, four adverbial participles, and that's just to say four descriptions of this walk. And the four also begin and end in similar ways in both places, beginning with an agricultural metaphor and ending with thanksgiving. So reading from chapter 1, here's how he describes the walk there. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. That's the four. And here are the four descriptors of walking in Christ here in chapter 2. Rooted, that's the agricultural metaphor, and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught and abounding in thanksgiving. So let's look at these more closely beginning with the first two. Rooted and built up in him. Now these first two, they are closely connected as they share one prepositional phrase. In him, in Christ. And first Paul speaks of being rooted and Clearly, this is drawing on this agricultural imagery. A plant needs to sink its roots down deep as well as spread them out wide in order to draw water, draw nutrients from the soil. And the more well-established those roots are, the better it can handle anything that happens to it up above. Even sometimes a plant can be chopped down and regrow from the roots alone. If you have solid roots, you can withstand great trials. This imagery of being rooted, it makes us think of a passage like Jeremiah 17, 7 and 8. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, 
for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. So the first aspect of a life lived in Christ is to draw your strength and sustenance for life from Christ himself. It may seem obvious when I put it this way, and yet sometimes we can, we can miss it. Let me say it this way. You cannot walk in Christ, you cannot live in Christ without Christ. You must depend on him, you must abide in him, you must be rooted in him. Paired with rooted is built up in Christ. Now here we have an obvious construction metaphor. As your roots sink downward, you must also be built upward. While rooted is in the past tense, implying that the roots are already there, but they must be drawn upon, this is present tense. This building up is something that is ongoing. It is continual. And here it's also obvious, this is not something that we do for ourselves. We don't build ourselves up. This is something we receive as we walk in Christ, as we remain in Christ. Christ builds us up through the means of grace, through the word, through prayer, through the sacraments. And so with both of these, we think of Jesus' lesson of the vine and the branches. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15. You cannot be rooted and built up in Christ without remaining and depending on staying near to Christ. And the third description of how you are to walk in Christ is established. Established in the faith, just as you were taught. This is continuing that construction metaphor from being built up to being established. As you are rooted and built up in Christ and by Christ, this leads to being firmly and solidly grounded, that is, established, established in the faith. And speaking of the faith, this is a summary of Christian doctrinal truths that every believer confesses. But it's not just an intellectual knowledge of abstract truths. It's a knowing and trusting that they are true in such a way that they are reflected in your life. You are established in such a way that you are not tossed to and fro by the waves. Your house is not built on sand, but on the solid rock that is Christ. And Paul, again, reinforces this, that this is just what the Colossians were already taught what they had already received from their friend Epaphras, just as you are taught. To walk this way in Christ is nothing new to them. But he's about to contrast this simple walking and remaining in Christ with the new, the different doctrines and practices of the false teachers that he is warning them about. The fourth and final description of how to walk in Christ is abounding in thanksgiving. Just as Paul concluded his description in chapter 1 with how to walk in a way pleasing to the Lord with giving thanks to the Father. So it's put even more strongly here, not just giving thanks, but abounding, overflowing, 
bursting at the seams with gratitude. And this should be no surprise to us. Thanksgiving is absolutely essential for the Christian. And you simply consider all that the Lord has done for you, believer. How he has redeemed you from your sins, taken you from death to new life in Christ. How he continues to work in you to sanctify you. How he provides for all your daily needs. How he hears your prayers and answers them. And how he has given you an eternal hope. And of course, I could go on. How can you not overflow with gratitude? And so continual thanksgiving, it is a crucial part of walking in the Lord. Now the very next thing we'll see is a warning not to be taken captive, not to be led astray. But if you think about it, gratitude actually serves as a defense against being led astray. When you are constantly remembering before the Lord all the good that he has done for you, all the grace that he has shown you and continues to show to you. Those who try to tempt you away, saying there's something else, there's something better out there, there's something else you need besides Christ. Their temptation will have little purchase upon you. When you are constantly reminded by your own thanksgiving that Christ is the source of all the good things that you have received. It's the ungrateful and the discontent Christian who is more likely to be lured away by the false teachers. And so we've seen this first exhortation, the first command in the letter, simply to walk, to live in Christ. You've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live like he is the Lord of your life, because he is. Now, this will be expanded on throughout this chapter, and especially in chapter 3, but that's the big picture. Walk in Christ. Now, following this comes the warning to watch out. Don't be taken captive. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And this is the first of three warnings in the chapter. The other two come in verses 16 and 18, but this one it introduces and it, in a sense, summarizes them all. It is a strong warning. Paul cautions the Colossians, be on the lookout, be wary, lest they be taken captive, carried off as plunder by these false teachers that threaten them. Now, he doesn't name the false teachers, but he does describe the general character of what they teach, both here in verse 8 and throughout the rest of the chapter. As we consider these anti-Christian teachers that threaten to lead the Colossians astray, we also want to consider how we need to be on guard against any false teaching that could lead believers, that could lead us astray from Christ today. Let me ask you a question. What is the best way to get someone to do what you want them to do? It's not to kidnap them, to force them into slavery, to force them through violence, with threats, to do 
force them to do what you want them to do. That's not the best. If possible, the best way is to persuade them with words that they actually want to do what you want them to do. Now, if that's not actually what's best for them, this will often require a little bit of propaganda, some lies, some deceit. And that's what Paul says is exactly what's happening here. Paul says they will take you captive with their philosophy and empty deceit. In the original Greek, these concepts are both governed by one article, one the, that is to say, which shows they are closely associated. So in other words, Paul is not attacking all philosophy. He's not attacking all careful reason thinking. He is saying that this particular philosophy of the false teachers, it is empty and deceitful. It is full of lies. Now in the next two verses, Paul will speak of the fullness that is found in Christ, how the fullness of deity dwells in him and how we have been filled in him. But it seems that Paul is choosing this language not only because, of course, it accurately describes Christ, but because the false teachers were using this language. They were claiming there's a greater fullness to be had if you only follow our teaching. Come to us and get fullness over here. But Paul here, he is coming out swinging. He says their philosophy is not fullness, it is emptiness and lies. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul had described his gospel ministry as a stewardship from God. The gospel is something that God himself has revealed. But he says this empty philosophy, it's merely human tradition. It is nothing but the teachings and the inventions of man. It cannot hold a candle to the revelation of God. Next, Paul describes their teaching as according to the basic elements of the world. Now, there's some scholarly debate over how best to understand the Greek word translated here. You might have different translations depending on what version you have before you. Whether it describes the basic material elements of the world as they were understood in those days, the Greeks thought of the elements as air, fire, earth, and water, or whether this is a reference to the pagan worship and service of the spirits that were believed to be behind those elements, the spirits that controlled the air, fire, earth, and water. Now, it's a difficult question, but part of the reason that I believe Paul is using this term is to imply that these false teachers, they're falling into this pagan way of thinking. They're not looking at the material world as something created by and controlled by the one true God who is sovereign over all. But they're looking at it as elements that are under the power of various lesser angels and deities. And that each one needs to be served or placated in different ways. And that's why... As we go on, and we'll read later in the chapter, that they're obsessed with ritual food laws and asceticism, harsh treatment of the body, observance of days, the worship of angels. That's what they're focused on. They're trying to control these basic elements and the, perhaps the spirits or lesser deities behind them. But really, then, after saying this is what they're looking at, Paul gets to his main strike against them, his main strike against all their teaching, it's not according to Christ. That's really all you need to know. 
All you need to be concerned about to remain in Christ. And all you need to know about this false teaching in order to reject it is that it is against Christ. And when you know that, you can toss it all out. And we don't know all the details about what we could call this the Colossian heresy. But of course, there are all sorts of false teachers today that we know all about. All sorts of false teachers who would love to take you captive with their empty, deceitful philosophies and teachings. Now, these things run the whole gamut, and I can't list them all this morning, from the religious to the non-religious, from the liberal and licentious to the conservative and strict. And while we tend to think of people being led astray from Christianity through licentiousness, there are movements and teachings that look conservative, that look outwardly strict, just like these false teachers in Colossae. But either way, whatever it is, if it's not gospel-centered, if it's not true to God's word, if it's not centered on Christ, if it's leading you away from Christ, then it is false. It is empty. It is deceitful. We have the key test for any teaching, teacher, any teaching right here. Is this teaching in accordance with Christ? Does it line up with his word? That's the bottom line. And if it's not in accord with Christ, then it is to be rejected. So watch out. Do not be taken captive by anything that departs from Christ and his word. Next, Paul strengthens his audience by reminding them, by reminding us, You don't need any of this because you have everything you need in Christ. Reading verses 9 and 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and all authority. In these verses, verses, he reminds us of who Christ is, God himself in human flesh, and that through union with him, You have been filled. You have everything you need. And so you don't need the false teachers. The best way of detecting the counterfeit is to intimately know the real thing, to know Christ. And so you will know immediately that those false false teachers are are not true. Let's look more closely here at verse 9. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This verse calls us back. It reminds us of the great hymn of Christ that we saw in chapter 1 where Paul wrote some very similar words. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. But here in chapter 2 he's even more explicit, specifying that all of God dwells in Christ in bodily form. And that is what makes this one of the clearest verses in the whole New Testament, teaching the divine and human natures of Jesus Christ, teaching his incarnation as it clearly affirms that he possesses the fullness of all that is God. And yet he does so in the form of a man, in a body clothed in human flesh. And the fact that this verse is in the present tense, it teaches that this is an ongoing and a permanent dwelling, even as he is the risen and ascended Christ. He continues to be both God and man forever. 
Now the verb, the main verb here, to dwell, it's also significant. It draws to mind all the Old Testament imagery of God in his glory as he came down to dwell in the tabernacle and later he filled the temple with his glory. This is also affirmed in John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so Jesus Christ has come. He has replaced the temple. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And as this verse emphasizes, he has the fullness of deity. He possesses the whole divine nature. There is nothing lacking in Christ who is true and complete God. And that means that if you have Christ, you have all of God. And as Jesus said in John 14, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and also I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And so we have this beautiful picture of the mutual indwelling between the Father and the Son, but also Jesus Christ in you. And so this all brings us to verse 10 where Paul writes, You have been filled in him. Since you are united to Christ, you have Christ who is fullness itself. In him, you have true spiritual fullness, which these false teachers had promised but were not able to deliver. Now note that Paul writes, you have been filled in him. He doesn't say you have been filled with him. He doesn't actually say what you are filled with. But I think he intentionally leaves that open because you are filled with everything that you need. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ and in him alone. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, John 1.16. And in our scripture reading earlier, we saw how in Ephesians 3, Paul prays that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. But earlier in that same letter, he writes that the church is Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, Ephesians 1, 23. What exactly is this fullness? What exactly is it? It means that having Christ, who is fully God, being united to him in faith, Spiritually speaking, you have everything in him. There is nothing greater out there. No one else has anything better to offer you. Yes, it's true. You can always grow in Christ. You can draw closer to him. You can go deeper. But there is no other means to greater spiritual blessing than through Christ, than in Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the only way to the Father. Christ and Christ alone. And so that means don't look anywhere else. Don't let anyone take you captive and lead you astray. He is your Lord. He is your fullness. Walk in him, live in him, remain in him. Jesus both warned us and also pointed us the right direction in John chapter 10. As he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd 
lays down his life for the sheep. So don't go after any other alternative. All the alternatives are thieves that would steal you away from Christ. But go to the good shepherd. Walk in him. Rest in him. Trust in the good shepherd alone. And he is your fullness. The abundance of spiritual life can be found in Christ, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have called us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us on the cross so that we might be forgiven, reconciled to you through his blood poured out. We thank you for this amazing grace and may we never cease to be filled with gratitude for all that you have given us in Christ. May we truly know and understand who Christ is, the fullness of all that he is. And may we know and understand the fullness that we have received in him. And having received such abundance, help us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We owe you all that we are, all that we have, and we long to give it back to you in an outpouring, a sacrifice of praise. And so we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.